Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Each week, we lead diverse tech startup conversations with hard-hitting analysis from the greatest minds in your local startup community around the world. And I'm your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Hello again, family. I'm excited to report that we have another fantastic interview in store for you this week. Uh, So I met Christina uh, at a party. It was sort of a party with a purpose because our intent in coming there was to figure out how we could fix the sort of leaky pipeline uh, with founders of color, Um, specifically when it came to, you know, sort of uh, supporting them with their resources and tools, all of that. What surprised me uh, was just how affable Christina was, Uh, but it shouldn't have surprised me because that's what she does in her business, which is uh, both a B2B and a B2C, helping organizations and uh, individuals tell their stories. I'll let Christina explain a little bit more uh, in our interview. Uh, What I love about this interview as well is how much practical wisdom Christina gives us. Uh, For example, how much money should you have when you strike it out on your own? Uh, You're going to get a chance to hear Christina's story from growing up in Utah uh, to finding her own story and voice and teaching others to do it in New York City. You're going to get a chance to to listen to us sort of go back and forth on how Christina uh, is able to unlock the power uh, within introverts and why they may be best positioned to tell uh, some of the best stories. So I hope you enjoyed this interview this week. Let me know what you think. Is uh, well. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Ogden, Utah, and people are correct to assume there are about two and a half black people out there. But my family originally was from Memphis, Tennessee, and moved to Utah in around the late 50s during the Great Migration when tons of black folks were leaving the South. They missed all the metros on the way, and they landed in Utah, and they were there for jobs and opportunities, and they've stayed. And it was a really interesting upbringing because I was what I coined an extreme minority, So racially, politically, religiously, I was on the outside and I learned very quickly how much narrative and story and myth affected how people interacted with each other and interacted with people that they don't know and feel like are outsiders. And that really inspired a lot of the work that I do in the career that I chose. Nice. And as I was saying, kind of in our intro, uh, followed your podcast, just your site, everything seems pretty seamless and fluid. Why don't you tell us about the tech background that you have? Uh, and anything else about how you just think about your your creative design? Yeah, it's kind of crazy because when I was in college, so I went to um, Cornell University. That's how I ended up bringing my black ass out of Utah into New York. And at the time, I thought I would probably go into the law field because I wanted to change the world and legal brief at the time. And out of college, I sort of stumbled into tech because I ended up going from law into the nonprofit space and using communication tools that were pretty kind of cutting edge at the time, like text message communication, um, email marketing, that sort of thing, to get young people to get up and volunteer on certain issues. So I was learning very quickly how do you program entire communication campaigns, how do you use websites and social media to get people to change their behavior and thinking. And I just stumbled on it. It wasn't like a, you know, a bachelor's degree in college or a field of study that I could have done at the time. And from there, it really informed me 
in a couple of ways in terms of design and storytelling visually online. And I use that to build my own platform where I was like, well, I know that these sorts of colors, the sorts of wording, this sort of flow in terms of user interface and user experience would be better. And that just came from lived experience from the job that I had as sort of this bigger campaign strategist doing everything. Because in the nonprofit world, you do all the things. You got like 100 hats and you get paid for maybe two of them and you learn a lot and you end up getting a lot of skills from it. So I would say my background in tech, because I was kind of sick of seeing the same stories, the same faces around people changing things and being leaders. I knew that people of color were excellent leaders. They have excellent ideas, but they're not really given the visibility that they deserve. So I started the platform sort of as a content um, project to begin with. And I was interviewing people who are minority entrepreneurs. And then over time, it evolved into a consulting company where essentially I use storytelling as a tool to help leaders to better sell their expertise, to help them overcome bias, really to help leaders have a higher awareness of their narrative intelligence so they can achieve their goals. And it was really from my personal experiences of being a woman of color in the workplace and seeing how toxic and messed up certain narratives culturally in organization can cause all types of issues, microaggression, lack of retention, lack of innovation, lack of creativity. And then also seeing how storytelling can actually raise the visibility of marginalized expertise. And that's where I wanted to be because I believe in leadership equity and this idea that Narrative intelligence, which is the idea of understanding how narrative drives every single human behavior, can be used to improve these equity problems that we see inside and outside of the workplace. Nice. Very good. Okay. Uh, So why did you not bring on a co-founder? A lot of people think you need to have somebody who can either complement your interests or make up for something that you're lacking. So tell us how you were able to kind of build a full team as a person of one person of one well really it came out of necessity because i didn't have a huge budget i wanted to be able to have total creative control so i could really figure out how do i go against the conventional that i understand and really build something around this problem of leadership equity how do we really create this at the center of the mission and sometimes it's hard to do that when there's too many cooks in the kitchen and if you have the pressures of people who want you to make money as soon as possible no matter what right so i chose to be a solopreneur so i could grow slowly test, be intentional, and also decide a budget. So what I ended up doing is raising, or not raising, I saved my own money before I left my full-time job and decided to start to bootstrap it, get my own clients, and keep overhead really, 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 really low, which is everything is done mostly digitally. And I was doing in-person workshops before I switched to more of a digital model. But because I've kept it pretty lean and sort of have been growing slowly, it's manageable as one person. Yes. But ideally, I would love to be able to bring on other experts who are um, complementary expertises and strengths. So people who could do editing for me, people who could do some of the sales stuff for me. Because literally, I do everything. Design, content, sales, um, business strategy, the finances, filing my taxes. I'm doing all of it. And I'm doing okay at it. But it's not sustainable long term. Totally. Uh, you mentioned that you stocked quite a bit of cash before you made the leap into full-time entrepreneurship. About how much do you think you would recommend folks have before they make a similar jump, even if it's different from your number? So the number I ended up saving up was 20000 And I call it my FU fund. I was like, I just want to have enough to have a couple of months of wiggle room essentially to figure out what's the market going to respond to what will they buy and so the products that i have are workshops that are around narrative intelligence and specific issues like unconscious bias and um, the knowledge economy and then i do digital consulting on copywriting and so i was testing out who's going to take these what introductions will actually take off 
and I needed a bit of time because it does take time to sell and it does take time to build visibility around a new idea. But I would recommend for most people to save at least six months of their expenses. So have a really rough tally of every single expense you have right now, personally and for your business. See what the rough monthly number is. Multiply that by six and honestly multiply it by 12 because most companies don't really get traction until about two years in on average. It takes time things about pivot it, get the momentum, get the right relationships, get enough credibility, clientele, testimonial testing. And that's just not going to happen overnight. Now it also suggests that you start these things while you're working full time, because I did start my platform as a side hustle. So that helped me to kind of use my job as the landing strip, as the money that was helping me to finance my idea. So I didn't really have much to lose while I was experimenting and creating content and creating frameworks and workshops. And I ended up um, using a lot of that as momentum before I also left. So as an entrepreneur, that's a great story, by the way. And it's helpful to know that it took quite a bit of planning. Sometimes you can take a shortcut. Entrepreneurs uh, often uh, have an, uh, a superpower of sorts, real or imagined. For you, what do you think that superpower would be that is sort of your go-to in real life? And what is sort of your imagined superpower? Hmm, that's a really good question. I think my superpower is bringing clarity to complex creative problems because I'm able to see disparate things and create patterns, create new, innovative, interesting patterns. And I think that's why I love stories so much because storytelling and narrative is really all about how do you take what you know and create something new by making unconventional pairings. So for instance, our brain stores all these stories and then we use them kind of like a catalog to make decisions. We're like, okay, I've had this one experience before. That means this, this, and this will probably happen and I need to make this particular action. And I think if you're going to be influential or persuasive or sell ideas or get people to change your behavior, you have to insert new stories or new ideas in old patterns. And so I'm really good at doing that and helping people to see their own narrative and how they can use that as a tool for a particular goal, whatever that goal is. So clarity is a big part of it and just ideation. And at first I didn't really think that was a, a strength. I'm like, oh yeah, everybody comes up with ideas, but coming up with actionable, tangible ideas is really difficult. And not everyone has this, the skill of being able to take abstract things and make it into something new that people are interested in. Very cool. Okay, so maybe we can peel back the layers a little bit on the new quote more with this question to kind of get inside your head about where the growth areas are. So what would you do if you had an infusion of $1 million in funding today? How would you use that uh, with the new quote and what would you get out of it? I love that question. I think people need to think about this more. I would take a fraction of it and help my family with it. I think it's important to help the people you care about. What's the point of making profit if it's not helping the people in the communities around you? So I would take a small portion, help them pay off their debt, help them establish some investments so that they can have a bit of a nest egg. And then from there, I would also take a piece of it and pay off some of my debt. Luckily, I don't have a lot of debt at all. I got really lucky coming out of college. The average college student has $30,000 in debt, but I still would want none. So I would clear out my debt. And I would also establish a little bit more investment in savings as a nest egg. And then the rest of it, I would really invest in a couple of key areas of the new quote. One of them is I'm extending the narrative training I was doing in person into a digital online experience so people can actually learn. How like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. So thank you for subscribing. And now back you to can. the show. 
build anything without creating something at some point and testing and research and all that's great. But if that's all you do, you're not really going to move forward or achieve any of the goals that you have. So that's one of the most profitable things that someone has told me. And also to make a plan because without a plan, you're just sort of spinning your wheels. And plans, this as we know right now in the COVID experience we're having, they could be up in the air, they could be completely mute, but at least with some plans, you have steps and some clarity. You can break complex things down into baby things you could do each week. That's what I did with the new flow. I would have a quarterly plan and I'd break it out into weekly tasks because I only have so much time and I'm still trying to like have a life and lotion and eat well and see my friends. Like I can't do all the things. So having that plan so you could do a couple of tasks a week towards that goal is also incredibly important for execution. Absolutely. Uh, execution is key. Speaking of innovation and creativity, which artist sort of most inspires the work that you do and, and kind of keeps you fueled and in the right frame of mind when you're interacting in your business? Which artist? Hmm. There's a couple. I would say, interestingly enough, Kendrick Lamar has been a big inspiration for me because I love him as a storyteller. I think he's done an incredible job showcasing another side of where he's from and the experiences he's had and these really beautiful, poetic, catchy pieces of art that make people think differently. And I call that a status quo shifting message. That's the methodology I talk about. It's really, what are these messages in the world around us that get us to think and see differently? And those sorts of messages really inspire me because it shows how a simple story or a narrative can completely change how we view the world and completely change how we interact with it. And um, there are other artists like that too, like Issa Rae, for instance. I started following her years ago when she was just a YouTube editor and experimenter and I remember supporting her Kickstarter and I was like this is a really status quo shifting message because she's taking the benign that we all understand the sort of like day-to-day -day awkward office-like experience and showing how black people have variety in their identities and variety in their experiences and it got people to talk about things differently and make a lane that some black people are awkward and nerdy and weird and they are black as well like there's this lane for that experience so people like that who are shifting the status quo with the things that they make and create and the messages that they put out there. Another great one is um, Isabel Wilkerson. She created a book called The Warmth of Other Sons. And it really is sort of capturing my family's experience of leaving Memphis and going to Utah because she, I think she interviewed like a couple thousand people who were part of the Great Migration and sort of recaptured their experience in this beautiful narrative structure. And it made me think differently about my entire family history, even though it's not my family's personal history. It felt like somebody was finally showing a light of what happened with this complete generation of people. So people like that really inspire me to continue to think about how narrative can be one of the most powerful tools to solve our social and cultural problems. That's powerful, and it's a powerful message and a powerful story. Now you're in the Big Apple, New York City. How does your upbringing, your experience being from Utah help you in New York City's burgeoning local startup scene and tell us more about how you've begun to develop your 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 footing here in the city. Being from Utah, I would say one of the key strengths I've developed is being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's what New York City is. It's a com it's a place that can breed a lot of discomfort in certain ways because there's small spaces, it can be crowded, things are constantly changing and I think that could be a good thing because discomfort and adversity at times can breed creativity and ingenuity. And that really marries well with my experience growing up and not feeling comfortable in lots of spaces and being able to accept that and to be comfortable with myself and to have an authenticity 
that allows me to talk to anybody, to walk into any room. I don't care what your title is or who you are. I want to still establish camaraderie with you and equality with you. And I think that's really powerful to have because New York can be an intimidating place. There's lots of people here who are all talented, who've all come from all over the world to pursue their dream. And if you get imposter syndrome, it's hard to be able to enter those spaces and enter them with strength and confidence and a point of view. And I think because I've been from Utah and I don't have nothing to lose and I have been in places where people are like, who, who the hell are you? It gives me a sense of fearlessness that is a strength for me. And New York City in and of itself gets a bad rap. I think people are like, oh, it's such a terrible city and it's so hard and it's this and that. The beauty of it is people want to see what you want to create and what you want to make and they're excited about that. I think there are very few places where people are generally like, you know what, I got a hundred things going on right now and like I'm doing this because I care about it and I'm passionate about it and not just because it's for looks or for show. And that's the thing I love about this place and why I've still stuck around even in the middle of this pandemic. I'm like... It feels like I am legend, the sequel right now, but this is the city that I'm in and it's given me so much and helped me to expand my creativity and my own impact that I'd be remiss to leave it. You've been building your reputation with the new Quo, uh, generally helping businesses, but also have become sort of a startup founder whisper. Uh, why don't you just kind of go through what's sort of the one key value add or one feature uh, that if you didn't have anything else, you, if you still had this, you could still take care of your startup clients. You could still help them, support them, and assist them in growing their business. It would be my storytelling methodology called the status quo shifting message. And this is a four-step process to help people figure out what is their theory of change and how do they communicate it in a way that is impactful, purposeful, and influential. Because without really understanding your narrative about your ideas, you can't sell, you can't connect, you can't build community, you can't build a team. And that methodology allows people to really get clear on their lived experiences and connect the dots so they can find what their unique competitive advantage is around their idea and, com and really communicate it in a way that gains buy-in. And that could be used for a lot of different problems. Like I talk about internal culture in organizations and it could be used for that. I talk about marginalized expertise. So people who want to enter the knowledge economy as leaders, people who have books or public talks or online content that methodology can be used in the same way because you're still selling an idea and trying to get visibility around it. So that one feature and what I offer in my workshops and also my consulting, I think is the most powerful value add that I give to people and really helps them to raise their own narrative intelligence so they can communicate more impactfully as leaders. Oftentimes people think your ability to do that is based on whether you're outgoing and extrovert even gregarious, but you seem to be able to unlock things in introverts that allow them to tell their stories within companies that helps those companies understand each other better and produce better products and services. Can you just talk about sort of that myth and how you overcome it? Yeah, because one of the key steps in the status quo shifting methodology is narrative inquiry. Because without self-awareness and understanding your own internal narratives, you can't be clear on what your purpose is and you can't be clear on what your goal is in terms of what you're communicating. And introverts are great at that. They are the experts at reflection. And so these sorts of processes where you have to use questions to unearth your own narratives is really a superpower for introverts. And I think a lot of leaders underestimate how critical it is to get very clear on what your values are, what your lived experiences have been, and what purposes drive the things you're making and creating. And with that step, people can get clear and get more conviction and confidence. Because without understanding your own unconscious narratives, 
you won't really understand your own behavior and you won't understand other people's behavior. And as a leader, a founder, an entrepreneur, that is your critical goal. That is what you have to do. That is your main job is to be a really incredible, impactful storyteller. You're trying to get people to be excited about this thing. You're trying to align people to a purpose. You're trying to move people towards a specific destination. And without that narrative inquiry and self-awareness, you're not going to be an effective leader. You'll start to be operating from fear, which is the default for most leaders and why we're in the mess we are right now. If you're enjoying the show so far, remember you can always enjoy the latest resources on our website at d-tech.fund. That's dtech.fund. Back to the show. If you're enjoying the show so far, remember you can always enjoy the latest resources on our website at d-tech.fund. That's dtech.fund. Back to the show. So I think introverts are some of the most effective leaders because of that step of that self-awareness, that narrative inquiry of getting clear on what their narratives are and then using those to connect with people appropriately and to persuade people into new ideas. Sometimes there's a moment that comes that fundamentally changes a business. Uh, For you, have you had that moment? And if so, could you describe this pivot moment that you think, kind of saved your company or at the very least transformed the way you view your success? I would say right now, you know, going through COVID, I was right before this, I was about to do an unconscious bias training with a major global fashion brand. And it was on the table and I'm like, hey, this is going to be huge. It'll be big. This can bring so much credibility and I can help them with something that they really needed help with because they had made some huge racial faux pas in the media before. So I was going to use narrative intelligence stuff to unpack unconscious bias. And when the uh, COVID hit, and that was in February, everything got derailed, everything got delayed, everything got paused, because we need to be at home. That is our priority, and it makes total sense, and I'm on board with that. But because my trainings were in-person, public speaking, I had to really think strategically and think, well, I was resistant before to the idea of building sort of a tech platform, quote-unquote, around this, but maybe this is the exact right thing I'm supposed to be doing. Because I need to be able to scale. I need to be able to reach people anywhere they are. And what I am teaching is is a powerful and critical tool for leadership development that I 100% believe we need right now. If we're going to change how leadership operates inside organizations, we have to raise people's narrative intelligences. We can't operate differently. We can't go back to the status quo because the leaders that we have have led us to this path. So for me, it was like an eye-opening thing. As I'm sitting in my house... For the last two months, self-quarantining and seeing how leaders are effectively reacting to this crisis and what narratives are driving their behavior and what narratives they're spinning and how those narratives could potentially kill people and have killed people, that has made me think, wow, I need to really scale this and I need to show how this particular tool set could help us do leadership, communication, organizational culture differently, or we're going to be in some dark places for a while. And so that, for me has been kind of a relighting of a fire and also an eye-opening idea of, you know, I didn't expect to build this particular thing, but now I have to do it. What a moment. Speaking of moments and communities, which communities have been most successful in growing your brand and in growing your exposure in your company? There have been two key ones. The first being Dreamers and Doers, which is an entrepreneurship group that's mostly facilitated on Facebook. And their main mission was really to bring in people who are givers, the idea that they give more than they take. 
so we could all sort of elevate each other, help each other out with not expecting much in return. And that group has really helped me with, you know, landing a business coach, getting my first clients. I got featured wow. in Business Insider and I think also from um, Forbes, I think, through that group. Um, so there's been a lot of different things. You get in what you put in it as well. So I've done a lot of community building and outreaching and coffees with people and phone chats and podcast interviews with folks. So I've built some level of connection within the company through my own outreach. But the group has really helped me to connect with social capital and visibility. And I think that's critical as an entrepreneur, especially an entrepreneur of color. We don't have access to so many circles. And those circles have power, they're gatekeepers. And being in this group has helped me to bridge some of those gaps. Another group that I'm part of that's much newer, but in the same sort of line is called The List. And it's an email list. I think it's like 500 women. Originally started mostly focused on tech and the idea of sort of derailing the whole boys club and helping women to kind of ask each other for resources and support. And I recently sent out an article to the group around how women and people of color are the leaders we need right now. And someone on the list saw it and she's been sharing it everywhere, like sharing it in webinars she's doing. And she has a decent amount of credibility. Her name is Sydney Gallup and she does innovation in the sex tech space. And she's been blasting my name everywhere and I've continued to get inquiries. Like I heard about you from Cindy and I read your article. I love what you're doing. I believe in the mission of leadership equity here. How can I partner with you? And so that's been huge. Like you don't know who's going to be your advocate or supporter and being a part of being a part of groups with like-minded people genuinely just want to see you win, who genuinely just want to support you is super critical. And I recommend every entrepreneur join something because when you're on your own, it's entrepreneurship is I literally, I said it on my podcast the other day, it's the ghetto, like Nene Leakes' joke. Like, it feels like the ghetto at times. Like, you are just up and down on a roller coaster, and being with people who understand that can be so reassuring, reaffirming, and just helpful. So doing it totally on your own without any community is really difficult, and I just recommend people join community. The floodgates of success are opening up to you, okay? Because even in the last time that we spoke, I can already see the progress, the movement, even the pivot, as you mentioned, in this COVID-19 environment. Do you want the new quo to become a billion-dollar company? And if so, do you want to run a billion-dollar company, whether it's this one or another one? Why or why not? And we ask because oftentimes this gives us a window into how people think about not just the money aspect of it, but the value that they hope to add to the world. At first, I my first reaction is no, but... My idea is I think that there should be a reimagining and a new narrative around what success is and what money means. Because right now we live in a world where unchecked, unquestioned growth means success. No matter how you get there, no matter what you destroy in the process, no matter who dies, as we've seen right now where governors are saying open up our states while we have very, very clear evidence that that will kill people. And it's because money and profit matters more. So I think we need a a reimagining of what that means, which I call conscious capitalism. Like how can we have companies where they get to a certain limit, they get to a certain cap, and the rest of what they contribute goes into this bigger pot, the social impact pot. Maybe it's an arbitrary number is 999 million, and the rest of the money goes into this pot, and they're evaluated by how successfully they contribute to public projects. So education, healthcare, Um, public works that are happening in the community, 
because I think that's what we need. Right now we have a hoarder-based system where a few people hoard a lot of resources and there are a lot of people who don't have a lot. So that's my take on it. I would run a company like that only if I could take the resources and capital and redistribute them in appropriate ways. Because I think if we don't get out of that system, we're going to continue to have problems. I do want to scale it to at least seven figures in terms of my ideas of being able to have the scale that I wanted to have, the reach that I wanted to have, the people who could interact with it. But it's never been my goal to have this sort of King Kong-sized, obese company that just grows infinitely without any intention or thought about what that means in the bigger picture. I believe in a donut economy. Nice. And I think the more people buy into that and believe that we can kind of have a shared pool of resources, then we probably won't be in a pandemic again. And yes. I think we need to think more deeply about that. Last two questions, they're related, so I'm going to ask them together. Does it even feel like we've reached sort of the the ending point here again? But uh, again, it's sort of right back to the product and then the company as well. Uh, what is the most valuable product that you would have to offer? If I wanted to buy from you right now or sign you up, what would be that most valuable product I could buy? And then the second question is, would you ever sell even a piece or all of the new quill? So the most valuable product, well, I'd give you two, is my narrative training. And I have two specific ones, one being for people who want to get over their biases as leaders. Um, So there's that. The other training that I offer is to help minority entrepreneurs become more powerful storytellers so they can better sell their expertise. And that's also a narrative training. And then the other product I offer is copywriting services. So people who need help with their copy and their story, sometimes they're like, listen, I want to learn, but I would just rather have somebody else help me craft my narrative, help me to think about my value proposition, my website copy, my content, and I do that. I actually write for people and craft the narrative for them. And I think that's super powerful because sometimes you just don't want to do it and it's just not your cup of tea. And I understand that not everybody wants to invest in doing that themselves. Love that. So I offer that too. Okay. And it sounds like you have a direct impact on the bottom line and that if you can unlock the people who are holding back in companies for them to start perform, performing at their level. Uh, that's a conversation I'm sure people can relate to. So is there anything else, though, that you have for us or anything else that you want to share before we let you go? I'll let you go ahead and uh, let people know how they can get in touch with you on all of your platforms. I know you have a lot of ways that people see you and get in touch with you, but uh, go ahead and, and tell us how we can keep the conversation going. If you want to listen to my podcast, it's called Sway Them in Color, and I essentially interview people on their own narratives of acts of creative courage, especially after adversity or crisis, and that's very timely right now. And yeah, you can find me at thenewquo.com. I have a newsletter, and I send out content. Also on Instagram at Christina Blacken, and Twitter at C Blacken. It's funny, because I used to hate Twitter, but now I feel like I'm on it all the time. So that's a place you can find me as well. And your articles on LinkedIn as well. I mean, that's how I probably yeah. see you a lot is your activity on LinkedIn, your thought leadership. Yep. Also on LinkedIn. I'm up on there all the time, posting articles. And it's just under my name, Christina Blacken, if you want to find that. Fantastic. Well, with that, I think that we will let you go. It's been a pleasure, uh, Christina.